Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power. Every individual's actions matter in preserving resources. Join the ripple effect to build a more resilient water future. Learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. It's been called the scariest movie of all time, and it just turned 50. William Friedkin's The Exorcist, released in 1973, It's since inspired sequels, prequels, even a television series. In his new book, The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear, writer and film historian Nat Segaloff brings his thoughts about the film, one that he was first introduced to at a special critic screening in Boston when he was doing publicity for a theater chain there that was showing The Exorcist. Little could he have known at that point that the film would become the kind of cultural icon it has. Nat Sagaloff, author of The Exorcist's Legacy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me here, Larry. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. So take us back, because I'm so interested in your personal experience of this, this very hastily set up Christmas morning screening of the film for critics just before its opening the next day to the general public. How did the critics respond to the movie? They were very strained by it, but at the same time, they were very moved by it. Of course, being torn away from bosom with family on Christmas morning to see a movie about a little girl's head spinning around, uh, you know, knowing the critics, that probably wasn't too much of a hardship. (laughs) They wanted to see it. And we didn't know we were supposed to throw up. That's the thing. I didn't see the film that day. I was guarding the door of the theater to make sure nobody who wasn't invited got in. So the regular patrons didn't wander into this shocking film. Yeah, that would have been fun. Give them something to work out in therapy for the rest of their lives. The critics then went home, and some of them wrote about it. Most of them liked the film very, very much. But we had a day on their deadline because Mr. Friedkin himself had allowed us to show the film a day early. Now, you mentioned people vomiting in the theater. That really, this was really a phenomenon? It was, and nobody had planned it. You know how these things go. No one knows exactly what tells the public to do things, but they do it. We started getting reports from our theater manager that people weren't quite making it out to the street before they let go with the Technicolor yawn. Warner Brothers heard about this from other cities as well. And the nearest anybody can figure out, because I don't think you can, you know, test for doing what people did, is that there was one particular moment in the film that if you were going to be sick, that was the moment. And here's your test. Can you guess what that moment was? Well, because I read the book, I know. Oh. But you would think it's the pea soup, the you know, the vomiting in the film. Yeah, you would. It was the arteriogram. It was the laboratory procedure whereby Reagan had a needle inserted into arteries. And I'm not going to go on from now, but that's the point at which people ran out. Very graphic and very medical and very anatomically correct. And the people who ran out were men. (laughs) The men couldn't take it. Women, we all figured, had a mothering instinct. They were not going to leave a child in jeopardy. And in fact, that's the narrative spine of the film. So it certainly makes sense that the females in the audience knew what they were doing more than the men did. We're talking with Nat Segaloff, author of The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear. You point out something that I really hadn't thought of at all, and that is the um, 
semi-documentary style of, of the way Friedkin and his cinematographer shot the film, which made it all the more frightening because it's presented as though this is this is a documentary of a true incident. That is true. Billy Friedkin's career began in documentaries at WBKB in Chicago when he worked with a then-untested cameraman named Wilmer Butler, who later changed his name to Bill Butler and shot Jaws and, you know, nothing like that. Working with Owen Roisman, who just shot The French Connection, with his, which is very much in documentary style, Billy decided he would give a documentary approach to The Exorcist. And the way they did it was not just a handheld camera. That wasn't the case. But it was working with Dick Smith, the makeup expert, and Marcel Vercoteur, the mechanical effects expert, so that everything you see in The Exorcist, the bed levitating, Reagan flying around, uh, furniture shifting all over the floor, doors breaking, everything actually happened. No CGI. No C- There wasn't CGI. Yeah. In fact, the only optical trick in the whole film is the vomit shot, the one shot, because they, they tried all sorts of ways to get vomit to work, and it was sort of like opening a, a shaken-up soda can on a hot day. It spewed, but it didn't really go in the direction they wanted. But everything that you saw actually happened, and that was a veracity that I think audiences, in some ineffable way, actually appreciated. There also, I, th- I think, has been uh, too little credit uh, to Mercedes McCambridge, uh, terrific radio actor, and of course, you know, film and television, but one of those great voices, uh, if you're a fan of old-time radio, you hear her a lot, and um, in voicing the demon in the film, it's a, it's a great performance. Oh, she put herself through hell on purpose. I mean, she really abused herself and endangered her life. As Reagan was tied to the bed, she also, Mercedes McCambridge, demanded to be tied to a chair in front of the microphone where she was doing the dubbing. She drank raw eggs. She smoked. She began drinking alcohol again, and she was a recovering alcoholic. Oh, no. And she still put herself through that, to put herself into the hell that this little girl must have gone into. And I think the performance is without equal, really ripped bloody from the base of your spine. Yeah. What does she say about that performance years later? I mean, she did so much work, but she's perhaps best known for that voice voice performance. There was a bit of a brouhaha because she said she was supposed to be given screen credit originally, and she wasn't given credit on the first series of prints. It went back and forth a bit with Warner Brothers, but Warner Brothers, when they struck new prints and expanded the film's play dates, they did put her participation credit on there. Yeah, I don't know what her financial arrangements were, but yeah. she just, I mean, she made the film because they had originally tried Ken Nordine, who was a marvelous bass-voiced uh, uh, performer and announcer out of Chicago. They tried him. He tried messing around with the sound. They didn't have all the digital sound they have today. Buzz Knutson and Tadeo tried it. They finally had to go to a human. And that was Mercedes yeah, McCambridge. With an incredible performance. We're talking about The Exorcist 50 years ago. The film was released, The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear. Nat Sekuloff is the author of the book. Uh, also, Linda Blair's performance, of course. Uh, you know, How did she get cast in the film? Well, she and her mother came in late after all the casting had happened, and they figured they were never going to be able to find a young girl to be in this. And she just asked to audition. And Billy Friedkin, who can handle anything, gave her some of the script pages and said, well, what would you think about this? What would you think about that? Not so much seeing how she could act, but seeing how precocious and self-aware and and centered she was. And she certainly is. I mean, then and now, she's a, a very bright, very kind very intelligent woman who uh, at this point is, is uh, running pet charities and doing animal rescue, which is just a wonderful blessing that comes with her exposure from the exorcist. 
Let's talk about the adaptation, William Peter Blatty. The novel is a bestseller, and this is, you know, sort of similar in vain to what happened with The Godfather. You have a novel, it's a bestseller. It's adapted to film. Expectations are high. In the case of The of the Exorcist, how much of the novel ends up in uh, Blatty's own adaptation? Well, the first adaptation Blatty did was full of flash-forwards and flash-backwards and voiceovers and effects. So he's trying to make it real cinematic. Real cinematic, and Freakin says, no, no, it's Put the book onto the script. And, of course, he won an Academy Award for it. They took out many of the subplots, such as the butler, Carl, who was sneaking off to visit her daughter. Uh, they, they took out a couple of other scenes that had to do with character and plot because, and I think Friedkin said this in Blatty too. once the film's been open for a week, everybody knows the girl's possessed. There's no way they're going to be distracting it with anything else. And this, by the way, is why they removed the so-called spider walk scene, whereby Reagan walks down these stairs backwards, her tongue flicking out, looking like a, a spider. Well, if you're the mother and you see your daughter doing that, you're not going to take her to another shrink. You're going to head right to the witch doctor. <laughs> so, uh, and the other thing, in in that scene, there were wires that, that they couldn't, uh, because they didn't have the technique Oh, they didn't, to right. It, yeah, she was coming down the stairs on a skateboard, essentially. Yeah. Not Linda Blair, but, and there are maybe two different contortionists. We're not sure who it was. Mark Kermode, who is Britain's leading critic and one of the great exorcist scholars, and I have been trying for years to figure out exactly who it is. She was makeup and upside down. We couldn't tell. But they had to take that out because it simply didn't work. That was put in for one of the reconstructions that Billy did. But there are some of us who think it still isn't necessary. And they, because they had the technology to right, remove right. the wires at that, sure. at, at that point. Um, let's talk about where The Exorcist stands in terms of its horror factor, because I didn't actually see it when it came out. Originally, I was a little young. I was 14, and so I only saw it later, like you know many of our listeners did, on television, which is a very different experience than sitting in a theater full of people for whom this is a fresh film never seen before. Um, you know, how does this compare to like Night of the Living Dead and some of the other scariest films of all time? It's funny you mention that because John Russo, who is one of the writers of Night of the Living Dead, gave me a foreword for The Exorcist's legacy. And that's a kind of a blessing, if you will. The Exorcist in a theater has a certain group phenomenon. You know, as you know, Frank Capra said, an audience full of eyes sees things faster than just individually. And this certainly was the case with The Exorcist. But to call it a horror film is something that opens up a whole can of worms and pea soup. Because, you see, the people who made the film didn't think it was a horror film. They said it was a supernatural detective story. But it's been labeled as a horror film, and I think there's, there's a reason for that. First, it's recalling thousands of years of religious brainwashing by people who have this in their hearts and minds and souls. And secondly, when you're in the theater and you're seeing Freddy or Jason or the Frankenstein monster or the Wolfman, you go home and, and the monsters are still living in the theater. But when you get home, Satan could be in your closet. So true. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> we'll continue our conversation with Nat Sagaloff, author of The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear. And we'll listen to a selection from the film when we come right back on Film Week. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. 
Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. In case you just tuned in and you didn't hear what our critics had to say about Haunted Mansion or any of the other films out this week, make sure you go to wherever you get your podcasts and download and subscribe to Film Week, which is available to you as a podcast, also at LAist.com, available there for you whenever you want to hear it. We're talking right now about the 50th anniversary of the classic film, The Exorcist, The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear, written by our guest, Nat Sagaloff, who is a writer, broadcaster, film historian, and as you can tell, wonderful raconteur about the making of The Exorcist and about its place in popular culture. Let's listen to a a clip where uh, we get our introduction to The Exorcist. Because little Reagan McNeil has been acting very strangely, her mother, Chris McNeil, has invited Father Karras, Father Damien Karras, played by Jason Miller, to interview Reagan, who is at this point tied up in bed because she's possessed. In order to perform an exorcism, the Father Karras has to get permission from the bishop, and he does that with this initial interview. Hello, Reagan. I'm a friend of your mother's. I'd like to help you. You want to loosen the straps, huh? I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Reagan. I'm not Reagan. I see. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. Another example, Mercedes McCambridge. Mercedes McCambridge. Great <laughs> voice work. And then we have more on the background of, of The Exorcist. Well, yes, we do. In this case, Father Marin, who is played by Max von Sydow, has been called because Father Karras is really too inexperienced to perform an exorcism. He arrives in the townhouse in Washington, D.C., very quietly, and... Damien Karras tries to give him the background, which you'll see is not at all necessary. Is Father Karras here? Yes. Father? He's here already. Father Karras. It's an honor to meet you, Father. I'm very tired. No. I'd like you to go quickly across to the residence, Damien, and gather up a cassock for myself. Two surpluses, a purple stole, and some holy water. And, um... Your copy of the Roman ritual, the large one. I believe we should begin. Do you want to hear the background of the case first, Father? Why? <laughs> That's such a great, such a great. I mean, uh, hair on the back of my neck goes yeah. up just hearing the sound <laughs> <I know>. effects <laughs> from that. What was the shoot like? I know they did it in New York City. Uh, instead of doing it. You know, here in Los Angeles, uh, what was it like being on location there? Well, there were two reasons for that. First, Billy Friedkin didn't want the actors driving to the studio here in Burbank and seeing the palm trees in the background. He wanted them to feel insulated as if they were in their own world. The other reason for going to New York was that in those days, the child labor laws of California were more liberal. And since it took about three hours to put on Linda Blair's makeup, that would have given her five minutes to perform in front of the camera. You mean more restrictive here in California, so more... 
Well, they were very loose in New York at the time yeah, okay. and, and much more restrictive. Thank you. Here in California, she simply couldn't. Nobody could have done it out here. Uh, and so they were filming it in New York. And of course, you know, making a movie, as you know, is like putting together a, a jigsaw puzzle where somebody's throwing the pieces up in the air. As William Goldman says, your most exciting day of your life is your first day in a movie set. And the most boring day of your life is your second day in a movie set. <laughs> the reason the actresses went months and months and months over schedule is because they had a refrigerated room so you could see the actors' breaths. Again, no CGI. And every time they did a shot, it warmed up so much they had to cool it down for another couple of hours. They could only get five or six shots a day or maybe a couple of setups. And so it took a long time, and Warner Brothers was very nervous until, of course, they saw the film. Yeah, and and a classic. Uh, what was the box office return at the exit? My, my memory is that it was just everybody had to see it. Everybody saw it, but what makes a hit is when you see it multiple times. You know, first you see it, then you bring a friend, and then you bring a date who you hope jumps into your lap. That's that's the the law of, of seeing movies. Uh, I don't have the, the figures now. It's somewhere around $300 million. I wouldn't be surprised. And this is when tickets cost like $2.5 yeah, yeah. each. Yeah, I mean, in today's numbers, way, way higher. Oh, yeah, and it cost about $14 million, I think, plus print and advertising. You know, you can never believe those figures, which is something we hear from the profit participants all the time. Yeah, right, right. Well, and, and of course, as it was so profitable, we got all the series of sequels that followed, some of which used the name Exorcist, but really had nothing to do with the baseline story. That's the problem. If you make a film with the word Exorcist in the title, you have to have somebody exercise somewhere along the line. The heretic Exorcist II, which we treat kind of like Fight Club, you know, there is no Exorcist II, <laughs> uh, was a real disaster and a disappointment, although it was very visual. John Borman simply bit off more than his skill could chew. Exorcist Three, which was written and directed by William Peter Blatty, who, of course, wrote the original, was far closer to his sensibility about faith. You know, his The Exorcist is really about faith, and that's what Bill Blatty was trying to introduce. He said, if he could somehow establish that there was a personified devil then perhaps they could also be God and a life everlasting. And he postulated that through his faith trilogy of the Exorcist, Legion, and the Ninth Configuration. And I think he made a pretty powerful case, although a logician would say, well, if you can prove the existence of apples, it doesn't mean the existence of oranges. But he made a very powerful case and a very Catholic film and I think a very religious film. In fact, I would say that the Exorcist is a better religious film than anything DeMille ever did. Well, and the Catholic Church were big supporters of the film, weren't they? Sure, it's the company line. Uh, Blatty also, I didn't realize, had quite the background as a writer of comedic scripts. You'd never know that from The Exorcist. In person, he was funny as all get out. But yeah, he wrote A Shot in the Dark, the uh, pink, the second Pink Panther film. He wrote John Goldfarb, Please Come Home. He wrote <laughs> all kinds of loony, wonderful films. And then all of a sudden, tastes changed and he couldn't get work, so he said he'd take some money. He won some money on the Groucho Marx show, You Bet Your Life. Yeah, <laughs> and he yeah. went off and he wrote a novel. Wow. And and it was the original source material from the 1940s case on which this, this was. How close is it to that, that case? Only partially so. There was a case in Washington, D.C., suburb of Cottage City, Maryland. And I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is about a rifle shot away from there. And I wasn't possessed. A little kid, 14 years old, was supposedly freed of demonic possession by priests. Only one story in the Washington Post, and you'd think something like that would have had a follow-up, which made me skeptical. And a fine scholar, historian, and sort of a detective named Mark Obsastic was able to go and twist out who the person was, what happened, what date it happened, and what happened with the church. There may have been some, uh, let's say, conspiracy 
politically and religiously there to try to make it more important than it was. I'm not sure there was an exorcism, but William Peter Blatty, who was a student at Georgetown University, the Jesuit institution, saw that, and he filed it away for later. And uh, as I understand, the, the person who was involved in the real-life incident, his identity was divulged after his death, and he'd worked for NASA, I believe yes. it was? Yes, yes. So fascinating backstory, the whole thing. And, of course, I can't imagine what it was like for him to have The Exorcist come out as a film and you being the person that's at least somewhat loosely based on uh, something that supposedly happened to you. Well, you don't want to go on talk shows and talk about it, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that's the case. Hey, Nat, thank you for joining us again to talk about The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear. It's just such an entertaining read, so much I learned about the film from all the research that you did into it. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Larry. I highly recommend it. The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear from our guest, Nat Sakaloff. From all of us at Film Week, have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Remember, you can get the whole show wherever you get your podcasts. Talk with you again next week. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.